Hello and welcome to the May Yancey Street special, Justice for Madeline Pryor, the Goblin Queen. I've been a big fan of Maddie for many years now. Um, in fact, if you, you'll notice this, this might be a bit of a shorter episode because she doesn't have the lengthy history that characters like Cleo or Ileana Rasputin might. But um, if you would like to go to my website, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, I actually have every single issue in her canon chronology um, summarized all of her appearances, which is something that you can actually read yourself in under two hours. I have... I referenced it many times through the creation of this podcast because I'm including all of her history, her key appearances, her aliases, the teams that she's on and the roles that she takes in the teams, her alternate versions, which of course are not going to be in that character history summer because they are, as I said, the canon issues, uh, some favorite outfit redesigns, some of which are canon and some are fan designs. Doesn't mean that they're any less fantastic. Her character relationships, which is where we get into some complicated business here and uh, her entire character history the chronology from um, when we first meet her to really her modern history which is a much more shorter summary but we're covering all of the main bulk of the history a lot of that's going to cover around the inferno period and before that some what is honestly some very key X-Men comics from a really incredible era of just every issue was historical for multiple reasons. Um, and she comes out in that era. So it's really, really interesting of history to go through and to see what a fantastic era of X-Men comics, uh, what an iconic era of X-Men comics she was one of their main characters through. And of course, we'll also be talking about what it is that went wrong. Um, she's obviously a notorious villain who has done horrendous things at this point in her life. So what is it there? Believe it or not, there actually is an explanation to how she went from this character coming through the X-Men, uh, being on the X-Men team during this truly legendary era to being a, one of their most notorious villains. And there is an explanation behind that. She was not supposed to be a villain when she was first created. So we'll get into all of that with uh, commentary from the creators themselves. And we also have, um, I have a couple of articles that I referenced down in the, uh, with links in the description if you're interested in reading them in their entirety. Uh, for some people who are somewhat pros in the industry who have uh, made various comments on the life cycle of Madeline Pryor as we have seen it. But all of this information is accessible on my website. Again, that is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com if you would prefer to read that. I also plan on putting up a number of images um, continuing as I come across them and get them from my phone onto my computer and whatnot um, so that I can have a kind of continuing as I did with Ileana. She has a, she has a, 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 a blog post up there now where I have some of my favorite images of her from the comics. Um, and I have the same, I will be having the same for Maddie as well, which fun fact, um, her name is spelled M-A-D-E-L-Y-N-E. -E. It's a unique, um, often spell-checked, autocorrected version of the spelling of Madeline. But for whatever reason, with that spelling, you would expect her uh, shortening of the name Maddie to be spelled M-A-D-D-Y. 
It is not. Canonically, it is spelled M-A-D-D-I-E. Go figure. <laughs> no, I believe there is like one or two times where somebody, one of the letters spells it differently, but that's kind of like how, um, you know, you get old classic strange issues where they spelled Stephen S-T-E-V-E-N. So, you know, in various misspellings of various characters' names and spells and things, but that's just editing. <laughs> now, with this being the full history of Madeline Pryor, I do have to start by giving a couple of little heads up here. Uh, let's call them content warnings. Um, Madeline Pryor is a complex, let's just go with that, character. She has a bit of a rough history, so we're going to be talking about some uh, a little bit of testy subjects here. Uh, things are going to include the ideas of biological engineering, brainwashing, emotional and physical torture, abandonment, murder and suicide, psychological damage and extreme trauma, removal of personhood, infanticide, cheating and betrayal, etc. So if any of that is going to really put you off, maybe skip this one. But we are going to have a lot of lighter stuff throughout this. It's not, this is not all dark and dreary. And of course, the reason that we are doing this podcast um, is because the new, 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 mutants, <laughs> the new, new mutants arc by Vita Ayala and Rod Reese is taking place more or less in Limbo, starring uh, Ileana Rasputin, who I, of course, already did the, um, the last month's podcast special on and it is also starring Madeline Pryor. Um, there are some rumblings in the future of Madeline Pryor going off and doing some other things that I um, am not really a fan of how that's looking but we'll get to that towards the end when we talk about how her future is looking. But in any case this is a little bit of a celebration of Madeline um, and a, a call for justice for the Goblin Queen because she has been done wrong. She does deserve better. Um, and I think that honestly, uh, they could all do better in terms of her. And by they, I mean Marvel, the writers, the, you know, the characters, everybody could do a little bit better by Madeline. This is normally the part of the podcast when I would stop and go over all of my social media and uh, podcasts and website information. I'm going to go ahead and do that at the end of this one um, so that if you're new here and you like what you hear, boom, it will be there for you. I'm already regretting how I phrased that, but it's okay. We're going to go ahead and move right into the content of this May special, um, which I apologize you're not, probably not going to be listening to until June, just because I'm recording it at the end of May and odds are, timing-wise, it will not get out until June. Uh, do keep an eye out, though, for the June special, which is going to be about Patsy Walker, who is Hellcat at Marvel Comics. She has some really cool stuff uh, that's been going on by Christopher Cantwell in his Iron Man series. Um, that kind of run, including her, is somewhat coming to an end with the proposal of marriage from Tony Stark to Patsy, which I can guarantee she will deny. More about that when I record the June special in the coming weeks. Hopefully week. 
starting somewhere that's honestly a bit awkward to go through the the keys but i feel like it's a little bit important um some of her chronology so you you start to understand what the periods of x-men history that she kind of goes through are so her first appearance apparently there is an appearance of her as a child in avengers annual number 10 that is an issue that i own that is one of my absolute favorite key issues honestly for a bunch of reasons um but uh, supposedly she appears in that as a child i don't i've read it a bunch of times i i have failed to found it to find it to found it to have found it um but her first appearance as an adult is more of the important one anyway that is uncanny x-men number 168 uh, it's got a cover of kitty pride um and it's the notorious one where it's like the first couple of pages she goes professor xavier is a jerk which i don't know maybe it's not notorious to me it's notorious her marriage to scott summers unbelievably is only let's see math seven issues it's early in the morning seven issues later um an uncanny x-men 175 her marriage to scott summers she then gives birth to their son nathan further along than that was it took them longer to give birth to the baby than it did to get married or to get engaged and then married from being having met that was uncanny x-men 201 that's actually the first appearance of nathan summers um, we also have her debut of the Goblin Queen in all its entirety. It's the first mention of, uh, actually, it's not the first mention of the Goblin Queen title. It is her, the debut of her becoming the character of the Goblin Queen and her outfit. That is Uncanny X-Men number 234, which will go over that issue in her uh, character history, as well as 239 which is the first mention of the goblin queen title we get her origin in uncanny x-men 241 that is the tweaked origin of when they had to go back and make her a villain that's what 241 is for and then her untimely death or rather suicide comes in x-factor number 38 she returns to modern comics, uh, honestly, a number of times. Um, that's not very important. One of which was uh, X-Men Volume 4, Number 12 in 2014. Uh, but her kickoff to the Dawn of X return in the start of the Hickman stuff uh, for X-Men was in Hellions Volume 2, Number 2. Um, and that was an arc that, again, ended in her death, but was the kickoff to her... Uh, what has now been eventual return uh, and her new mutants arc which is going to be focusing on her and magic started in new mutants number 25 from the 2019 series and will be going i believe through at least issue 28. another way to get a good quick look at the periods that she is uh, mostly runs through in the classic x-men stuff is to see the various names that she gets called through the years um, and kind of a couple of fun nicknames and whatnot. Um, she is called Maddie, obviously, a number of times. There is, at one point, they tried out the nickname Lynn. Um, that was very early on in Uncanny X-Men 170. That was only her third appearance, uh, when she was out doing stuff, and Scott tried that one on her, and that was the only time they ever used it. It did not stick. <laughs> She is called Skipper in the X-Men Alpha Flight number, uh, well, X-Men Alpha Flight series in issue number one. Skipper referring to her being the pilot of the plane that 
goes down, and we'll talk about that again in her character history. Also in the X-Men Alpha Flight series, she is known as Anodyne, um, which is spelled A-N-O-D-Y-N-E. That is her sort of hero name when she is this hero character. Again, we'll go over what all those events are in her character history. Uh, She is also only ever referred to as Madeline Pryor Summers, to my knowledge, in that series, even though that is post her marriage to Scott. She is referred to as a couple of things once she has become the Goblin Queen. Uh, Obviously Goblin Queen, um, but she hasn't, as far as I know, been called that since Inferno, the first time having been in Uncanny X-Men number 239. She's also referred to as Mistress in X-Factor 37, Goblin Majesty in the same issue, and then uh, Red... (laughs) very simple one in Uncanny X-Men 242 and in a really boring arc, honestly, uh, that leads to her becoming the Goblin Queen or revealing herself rather as the Goblin Queen. She is called Mutate number 9818 uh, and we'll go over those issues when we get there. Finally, the only additional thing that she has been called is Red Queen uh, and that was in a tragic modern (laughs) story of her turn which is we'll cover it briefly because it was again tragic but not because the story was itself was it was just tragically written there are a number of teams besides just the x-men although we'll include that here that madeline is a part of through her history in the comics the first and foremost Um, not particularly a team, more of a role that she fills is that of airline pilot. This is not technically her actual past because, of course, she is a clone and was raised in a tube, Um, but she does continue to be a pilot. She does have those skills and use them through her comic book history, and she does work for North North Star Airways when we first meet her in the comics. Also, she is not just a pilot, but she is a star mechanic, engineer, and electrician as well. One quote that I found from an article, which I will have linked below, says she can fly it, take it apart, put it back together, and basically keep it in the air, even if it's just a rubber band and a couple of sticks. This is something that, to me personally, is important because I grew up around a lot of um, women in robotics and things, women in STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, which I find, uh, you know, pilotry, is pilotry a word? Flight and engineering and mechanics and everything like that, electricians, everything like that, that falls into those categories. And women in those um, who are passionate of those subjects, I, I feel like should be very much celebrated because we have some great ingenuity coming from women in those subjects, but it tends to be kind of poo-pooed, you know? That's that's kind of just the patriarchy for you as we are in the year 2022. Still, I digress. <laughs> I also think that it's important to mention this because she is a legitimately helpful and useful character. She has skills. She is not just this person who is swept up and becomes the Goblin Queen, and that is the first time that we ever see her do something important in the comics or notable. She was a very skilled 
character in many aspects, in technology, in computers. Even um, even Alex Summers, after she leaves the X-Men, points out that the computers worked for her better than they worked for any of the other X-Men. She has that knack. So I think that's something that's really important to remember for her. She's not just some villain. She's not just some wispy character who was you know, Scott's wife very briefly had his child and then became evil. There is a lot more meat to her. While her, the past of her as a technician and a pilot doesn't technically exist because she was only, you know, placed into, you know, modern times at whatever X-Men issue that was when she was, you know, who knows how long had been growing in a lab before that. But that doesn't really in my mind that doesn't really take away the actual skills that she does prove multiple times repeatedly through the comics to then still have and that makes it a little bit more of a tragedy than the way that she's been written through the years to kind of have forgotten she does have those skills she is a very talented character in her own right regardless of whatever mutant ability she may have, regardless of what Sim did to her to make her the Goblin Queen, regardless of any of that, she is a very talented character and she is useful and important in her own rights. When Madeline and Scott first get married, she becomes a member of the Berserkers. This is what we see during the two-issue X-Men Alpha Flight crossover. Honestly, super weird story. Um, basically, it is a group. She is taking a. Um, she she's basically just a pilot for this random group of expedition people, um, who are very anti mutant. Interestingly enough, uh, and she's taking them, and she has Scott there, who they refer to as her boyfriend, I believe, um, even though they're married at that point. Um, and they crash, it's a whole thing, ends up Madeline is given powers as well as the other expedition members by a quote, fire fountain. It's bizarre. Uh, they end up all growing in size and Madeline ends up with the powers of anodyne, the power and the ability to heal the injured. Of course, later on in the second issue, it's revealed that the fountain was created by Loki, but it is Madeline herself who stands up to the God of mischief and denies him. That is before Loki is then removed for punishment by higher forces. But through everything, she not only comes out to, okay, what is this, an altogether awkward se sequence of her healing Puck, um, very awkward for a number of reasons in retrospect, and she heals a number of the other Alpha Flight members in X-Men. She heals Wolverine of his feral uh, inclinations, you know. But then when Loki is taken away um, after she denies him all of her powers and all of the other people's powers and the um, that were given by Loki and everything that they had done with their powers goes away. So Puck goes back to being uh, Puck and, you know, well, it's it, it all goes back to the way that it was before. But we also find out in these two issues that Madeline is pregnant with Nathan Summers, who I believe they give actually a very weird name at that point. Um, but it, I don't think it was Nathan originally was what they were planning on the name to be. So that was her history in X-Men Alpha Flight uh, as a member of the Berserkers quite temporarily. 
She is also, of course, a very important member uh, during the Outback era of the X-Men on the X-Men team. She started out as a commercial pilot with a mean right hook, then during her time on the run from the Sinister's Marauders, which we will go over in her history, she ends up joining the X-Men out of somewhat necessity and becomes their tech support, managing to pull weight on the team without any apparent powers at all. Later on, they do try to do a little bit of retconning and saying that her powers have a little bit to do with it, um, but again, that was all has to do with them trying to um, cover their tracks, so to say, in having created her to not be a villain and then having suddenly made her a villain for reasons we will get to uh, at the end of this episode. But Madeline was, all in all, a huge talent with their tech. She was even, you know, prior to actually having joined the Outback team, she was even one of the one of the X-Men members who sacrificed herself in that spell with Forge, who then, uh, they all died, and they were brought back by some goddess, uh, loosely something or other. But that was a really big deal, and Madeline was a part of that, and that gets so forgotten that she sacrificed her life to, with other members of the X-Men to save the world. And that's why they, when they all come back, they go to Australia to be the Outback X-Men because the rest of the world thinks they're dead. We'll end up talking that to death, I'm sure, throughout this. But she, point being, she was a very important, integral member of the X-Men for a number of issues. Um, and that is something that really gets forgotten and her impact kind of gets written off by history in an unfair way. And to be fair, she was on a number of villains teams, one of which was the Sisterhood. Um, this was, there were a number of teams that she, we'll just do them together. Sisterhood, the Hellfire Club, the Hellfire Cult. It was all kind of this weird thing that when they were bringing her back, they tried to give her various roles and none of them really stuck. For the Sisterhood, it was going to be an all-female villain club, um, if you couldn't kind of guess that by the name. It included, I believe, in her iteration of the team, or what would have been the team, uh, obviously Madeline, Lady Deathstrike, Chimera, Lady Mastermind, Spiral in a form of Psylocke that was weird and complicated and had to do with resurrection and oh my gosh, what a mess that whole thing was. And then the Hellfire Club was some creepy stuff that we'll, we'll, we'll go over that briefly when we get to the, uh, the modern parts of her history. It's, it's honestly in, in part of the stuff that I ignore most about Madeline's history because it's not really <laughs> re relevant, I want to say. We'll go over it when we get there, but she is very temporarily a part of the Hellfire Club. Let's talk alternate versions of Madeline in the comics. My favorite is from the Inferno storyline in 2015 uh, when they when she was a part of Battleworld during Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars. This was Earth 91240, where Madeline ruled a region of limbo on Battleworld with Ileana believed to be her captive. Colossus would annually make attempts to save his sister, and the one that we see in the 2015 Inferno series by Hickman almost succeeds before it is revealed that Ileana has fully given in to her dark side and is actually ruling Limbo ahead of the Goblin Queen. He makes a deal with Madeline, Colossus that is, makes a deal with Madeline, hoping that his sister will return or be freed from Dark Child if he runs her through with her own sword. Um, and, and Madeline, Madeline, Maddie would help, 
uh, with her goblin horde in exchange for full control of Ileana's limbo. The quest kind of more or less succeeds, and there are some uh, complications with the uh, 91240 version of Madeline winding up in prime limbo after the event ends. Uh, it doesn't go anywhere, so that's not really necessary information. One thing that I do think is worth noting, though, is that this Goblin Queen has taken Nightcrawler um, and warped the ever-living shit out of him, making him this horrifying, twisted, demonic dragon. It is awful and metal and fantastic. There's also Earth uh, 89112, which is What If the X-Men Lost Inferno? This was from What If 1989, number six. In this world, Pryor and Sim were successful in opening their portal between Limbo and Earth, having killed baby Nathan Christopher Summers slash Grey. Uh, the demons overrun the planet, X-Men and X-Factor end up being dead, with the exception of Wolverine, who is possessed. The only resistance left is by Doctor Strange, who attempts to summon the Phoenix Force through Rachel Summers. Um, and then, uh, let's see, Madeline is successful in quelling the resistance and wrestling control of the Phoenix Force from Rachel, but is ultimately betrayed and killed by Sim using Wolverine's adamantium skeleton, which honestly sounds super metal. <laughs> Rachel, reassuming the mantle of the Phoenix, uses that force to cleanse the planet then of that demon plague. Huzzah. We also have, what if Wolverine had been a vampire during Inferno? It seems like a bit of an obscure one. This is Earth 9250 from What If Volume 2, number 37. This is the 1992 series, or possibly from 1992. Um, most mutants in the city of Manhattan in this one shot are ruled by Wolverine. Oh, sorry, are vampires ruled by Wolverine. Madeline is not infected, but becomes the Goblin Queen anyway, and plans on releasing her demon army to wipe out the vampire mutants and dominate the world. Madeline makes contact with the Lord of the Dark Dimension, Dormammu, who becomes her ally. The vampiric Marvel Girl, who is Jean Grey, bonds with the Phoenix Force, becomes Dark Phoenix, and then kills Madeline and Dormammu. In What If Mr. Sinister Formed the X-Men, this is Earth 956 on What If Volume 2, number 74, from April 1995. In this, in this story... Madeline is a member of an X-Men team formed by Mr. Sinister alongside Cyclops, who is Scott Summers, Havoc, who is Alex Summers, and, of all people, Sabretooth. However, this version of Madeline had never been awakened by the Phoenix Force, so she was simply a mindless shell inhabited by the psychic entity Malice. Boo. Scott noticed his physical attraction to Madeline, but could not respond to her advances. When he encountered Professor Xavier's X-Men and their leader, Jean Grey, however, much deeper emotions were stirred. Sinister called for their deaths, and under his orders, Cyclops and Havoc infiltrated the X-Men as double agents. In the Marvel Mangaverse, uh, which is Earth 2301, in the title known as Legacy of Fire, Madeline Pryor was reinvented as Madeline Pyre, a powerful sorceress and possessor of the Phoenix Sword, who was training her sister Jenna, J-E-N-A, to be her successor. Finally, we have the Madeline Pryor clones, who are not actually 
alternate realities, but there are alternate versions of Madeline, so we're going to go with it. Um, this is from Earth 616, our standard comic reality, where Mr. Sinister created a group of Madeline Pryor clones to contain the Phoenix Force energies that were siphoned from the Phoenix Five. However, unlike the original Madeline, none of those six had the ability to show indications of individual personalities or even free will and just followed Sinister completely, so they were not at all their own people. Real quick, we'll go over the various outfit redesigns that Madeline has had, canon and not. Canon, it's really not much to say about. Um, unfortunately, the only one... <laughs> The only real there's only two notable ones, and one of them is uh, it's 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 one of I think it might be my least favorite comic outfit design in history of comics. Um, it, it's unfortunately official, and it is an absolute complete travesty in every conceivable way. Um, it is by Greg Land. That would be a keyword to put in there, and it does basically look like a um, and some kind of, you know, bondage mistress SNM kind of suit, so to say. I, I, I would, I, I would presume that he did a terrible job of designing it because literally everybody I've ever shown it to has been horrified by what it looks like, um, including people who I know are in that community, so... It's not me. It really is a horrendous piece of, let's not even call it artwork. Um, but on a lighter note, Chris Anka has an official design, which is how this, that kind of run that, that would see it was, um, it was Matt Fraction, I believe, was doing that run. Uh, Chris Anka ended up doing the suit that she walks out of the run with. Um, because that is the one where she gets returned to life and actually walks away. And the next time that we see her is, of course, uh, Hellions, where she then dies and etc. Um, but this was designed by Chris Anka. It is kind of ending that whole period of the Fraction stuff, and it gives her more of a suit look. I think it has tannish pants um, and a kind of boob window top black top, which in a sense homages her dress, I guess. Um, so it's fine. It was, it was very plain, um, but it, not much to speak of, honestly. Now there, I have two absolute favorite non-official or just unofficial, um, outfit redesigns. Now one is by Megan Hetrick. It should be pretty easy to find. Um, it is basically, uh, I would say it is a little bit NSFW, sorry, um, but it is basically a pentagram bodysuit. Um, and being a patron of Megan Hetrick, I've been able to talk to her about it a little bit, and it's, she said she took her an awful long amount to, to design the bodysuit in a way that it was like a pentagram, but it actually, you know, sits over, you know, her nips and bits and stuff. Um, and would work as a physical bodysuit. So, you know, obviously gorgeous, um, but also have to take great appreciation of the design that went into it as well. Real great, true artist artistry. Um, the final specific one that I want to talk about again is another um, unofficial one. This is by user Pastel Rake, as their um, online things tend to say. 
Uh, they're also go by JPM or John Marsh. Um, this again is an unofficial one and it is more of a modernized suit version, um, but I think it fits her way better. It is sleek, it is classic, and also I would like to add that uh, it was uh, Pastelerique slash John Marsh who um, kind of solidified my idea of calling this podcast Justice for Madeline. They used that hashtag and I would like to credit them with that because it was uh, spur of the moment genius. I don't know. It was, it was a stroke of genius. So you can check out their design for Madeline. Um, and you can also check out, I will have linked in the description, uh, a link from a comic website about a, a bunch of fans redesigning various looks for Madeline Pryor. Uh, they come in various town levels of talent and uh, various looks. So if you'd like to check those out, uh, that will also be linked below. Moving on to the relationships in the comics between Madeline Pryor and other characters. What we're going to hit on here is uh, Kitty, also known as Kate Pride. Uh, Jean Grey, Scott Summers, Alex Summers, of course, other X-Men in general, Nathan Summers, her son, Sinister, um, and then we'll touch briefly on Sim and Nestier because they are two demons, so I don't really know if those count as relationships, but they are key in her history, so they need to get touched on briefly. Starting up at the top with Kitty Pride, aka Kate Pride. Um, these two don't, I, I, I have to admit, they don't necessarily have a close relationship in any sense. Um, the one thing that I really have to note about their relationship is that Kate was there at two moments in Madeline's history that were very integral and they have a bit of symbology, um, in the storytelling to kind of mark these moments in Madeline's history as being important. The first happens just before Scummers, Scummers. I should just start calling him that, Scott Summers, just before he proposes marriage to Madeline, uh, they are at Wolverine's would-be wedding, because it ends up not going through. Uh, Kitty Pride ends up asking Madeline to hold her purse, doesn't tell her the purse contains Lockheed, the dragon. Um, so Madeline takes the purse, looks in the purse, and goes, um, Scott, who are your friends? And that is when she finds out that his friends are the X-Men. That is kind of the start to Madeline's time um, with the X-Men and with Scott as being in the know, so to say. Two years later, uh, once again, Kitty Pride again asks and hands Madeline Lockheed uh, to take care of, to babysit, I guess, so to say. Um, which in this particular issue happens just before what becomes the beginning of the end for both the marriage of Madeline and Scott and of the history of Madeline as a somewhat straightforward character. Speaking of being a somewhat straightforward character, or rather not, Jean Grey, her relationship with her clone compatriot, mother clone, I don't really know. What would you call... She's a clone of Jean. What is Jean to her? Cloness? I don't know. What would you call that? I don't know if it's a term for that. Um, but in all technicality, Jean does reabsorb, so to say, Madeline's consciousness back into her at the end of Inferno when the team goes running through Jean's mind to fight Sinister. 
It is made out at that time that Jean now fully understands everything Maddie felt and experienced, all of her motives and whatnot. It was supposed to be all now Jean. But in my opinion, this is actually more or less where their connection ends. The five being a um, Jonathan Hickman creation, you know, the five of the resurrection team. Uh, the five have now worked with Cerebro enough to confirm that all clones are their own biological beings, origins be damned or not. But Jean has long since treated Nathan Summers as her son when he should really be going by the name Nathan Pryor. He was rejected by his father, the Summerside, at birth, and Jean, the Grayside, never physically gave birth to him or carried him to term in any way. He came from Madeline, and it's been established now that Madeline is separate biologically to Jean, memory absorption regardless. What I'm saying here, I think, is that the extent of Jean's, the extent of Jean and Maddie's relationship ever has solely been Jean underhandedly taking credit for Madeline's accomplishments. That's not necessarily me saying anything negative to Jean. That's kind of more or less the writer's fault. I would really like to see this changed. Um, I guess after however this new mutants arc ends possibly, I would like to see the two of them interact face to face and sort their differences out canonically once and for all. Um, you know, sit and go over what the memories they share, what actually happened, what their connection is, um, who one is compared to the other. And to me, this really all does also beg the question, what would Jean be like without that part of Maddie in her, without the memory of those experiences? Would Jean be a different person? Scott Summers, her one-time husband, obviously has to be mentioned. Actually, it's one-time husband for both Jean and Madeline, so go figure. There is plenty of evidence that Scott was motivated by all of, the, all of the wrong reasons in his courtship with Madeline. He was motivated solely by the fact that she looked like Jean, not that he was attracted to her as her own person, and that's where a lot of the trouble starts. Plus, actually, he is still dating or seeing a woman called Lee when he first meets Madeline, too. So, sorry, Lee. On behalf of Scott, he sucks, I know. Things with Scott start to go bad with Madeline in Uncanny X-Men issue 181, just a few issues after their wedding. Even after their son is born, Scott tries to use the X-Men as an excuse to ultimately avoid and abandon both his wife and his newborn child, which Storm ultimately firmly puts an end to. Even then, he pretty much takes the very first excuse he has to literally run away from his family and get what he really wants, Jean Grey. Later, writers will be asked to try and do a bit of character fixing, so to say, for these moments of failure in Scott's history, but it's never going to change what actually happened and how he was a real POS to them. Now his brother, Alex, is a little bit more uh, interesting to me. Madeline starts to bond with Alex in Uncanny X-Men issue 232 after Scott has abandoned her and the X-Men have helped save her life from the Marauders. Um, she does die in Alex's arms after getting shot in the heart in Dawn of X. 
uh, with her begging him to remember her as something more than just a Jean Grey clone, which is pretty horrifying of a thing for Alex to have to go through. Neither Scott nor Jean gave her any such courtesy the first time she died in Inferno, so of course that would be a concern of hers now. Now you have to ask the questions when going over Alex. What about Lorna? Lorna, also known as Polaris, and Alex were the first additional recruits to the X-Men after the original five from X-Men number one. And although Iceman also had feelings for Lorna for a while, it became clear that she and Alex were the ones who were in love. After later leaving the X-Men, the couple who did at one point get married went to California to pursue their graduate studies, but were attacked by the Marauders. After which Lorna was possessed by Malice, the leader, I believe, of the Marauders, and became their leader. Well, the other go became their leader after the fact. Her abduction was what initially motivated Alex to then rejoin the X-Men, where he in turn meets Madeline Pryor and falls in love with her. Lorna's powers would later be stripped from her by Zaladane, but the process did have the fortunate side effect of separating her from Malice. She and Alex were reunited as members of X-Factor subsequently. Since then, they only get back together just to break up sometime later, and as of Dawn of X, pretty much are sticking apart. You also have to ask the question when it comes to Alex, what about his mental health? Hellions did a really good job of displaying very clearly that Alex's mental health is shaky at best. There is something deeply wrong with his mind, and it's very likely that the additional traumas he has experienced since joining the team, including my aforementioned death of Madeline, not to mention his own death and resurrection, have likely made Alex's condition quite worse. What does this mean for their relationship between him and Maddie? In short, it means it looks like there won't be one. Alex was Madeline's only major supporter in Resurrection, and interestingly, he was there for her when she was at last brought back at the end of the Hellion series. That short interaction made it seem like they will be at least continuing to be companions of some sort, but all we've seen of Madeline between then and now, well, between then and the New Mutants number 25, the most recent time we've seen her, was a few panels of her in the background, I believe, of New Mutants issue 24, just chilling in the bar by herself, kind of looking sad and lonely and a little out of place. So we're led to assume they pretty much parted ways as soon as they reunited, and now Havoc is doing whatever, and Maddie is in limbo with Ileana and the others. So, so much for anything there, I guess, really. But anyway, if it did get them back together, it's unsure if it would be good for either of them, to be honest, uh, with the wrong writer especially. You need somebody who will let them settle their traumas and move forward at least, instead of being held down by what feels like ancient history to the readers. Hellions made it look like Alex was going to get an arc of healing, but he never did, so that technically leaves it open for Maddie to come and help with that, healing them together, ideally. I still really like the idea of Maddie and Alex being a couple, because they are both wounded birds, so to say, and have a fair amount in common. Also, he clearly loved her more for her in any way uh, that Scott could never could. That Scott never could. <laughs> As for the other X-Men in general, 
Since meeting her, even with her uncanny resemblance to Jean, the other mutants seem to have always been better at interacting with Maddie than even Scott himself was. I think we can blame this on Sinister, who more or less programmed her to be interested in him. Otherwise, she'd likely have found a much more suitable mate for herself, especially once meeting that team. When the X-Men team all, quote, die in a spell to save the world, more or less, and are brought back by a priestess for their good deed, again, more or less, Maddie is among the sacrificed and among those returned. After this, the USA believes the X-Men to remain dead, but they actually move to Australia and have their notorious outback period there. In Australia, Maddie consistently works alongside Storm, Havoc, Dazzler, Rogue, Colossus, Psylocke, and Gateway. Of course, later we have Longshot joining them as well. And all of these characters, they're perfectly friendly to Madeline, helping her and keeping her occupied as a full-blown member of the team. Nathan Summers gets a mention here. He is Cable, her son by physical birth. Um, not a whole lot of their relationship, really. I mean, she kind of went crazy and tried to kill him when he was a baby, which, again, was the writer specifically trying to uh, assassinate her character, which I absolutely hate saying that, but it's what happened. Um, and I do really think that it's a massive shame that young Cable, the, the Nate of Donovec's Cable series, he never got to meet Madeline because she is his mother, not Jean. As I've already gone over, Jean may have absorbed her memories, but she has never physically given birth to this day. Maddie has. It's a true shame that this opportunity for that connection was never made. Finally, we have to talk about Sinister, her creator, cloning her from Jean Grey and waiting for opportunity to replace her. That opportunity comes with Jean's death when a piece of the Phoenix Force returns to Earth looking for her and settles in Madeline's body instead. At that point, his plan is put in motion. With Jean's return at X-Factor number one, Sinister realizes it's time to cover his tracks and sends the Marauders after Maddie, attacking her and her newborn at their home. They steal the baby but fail to kill Maddie, who wakes up at the hospital with all record of her existence erased by Sinister's Marauders. She and Sinister finally meet in person in Uncanny X-Men 240, where she tells him where he tells her of her creation and tries to claim credit for all of her newfound and still growing powers and glory. She proves him wrong about both of those last parts, overpowering even him and starting Inferno properly. After Inferno in X-Factor number 39, audiences are led to believe Cyclops successfully kills Sinister, but it was revealed to have been a false death later in X-Men number 23 in 1993. We also have the demons Sim and Nastier, who do deserve to get a mention here because they are parts of Madeline's history. Nastier is really just a power-hungry, demonic dragon thing, and Sim is a demon who is most loyal to whoever is most powerful in the room, um, which can change quite rapidly. Uh, so not really one you want on your side because his loyalty wavers with the breath of a butterfly's wings. And that does cause issues for many characters, including Madeline, throughout history. Now let's get into the meat of the story, the entire character chronology for Madeline Pryor, aka just her comic history. 
Madeline is brought into the comics and featured in a legendary era of the X-Men. So reading up on her history will give you a lot of insight into that whole period, as I have already mentioned. We first meet Maddie in Uncanny X-Men 168, when Scott takes a trip to Alaska to meet with his family, meeting a pilot for her grandfather for his grandfather's airline, Madeline Pryor. Her uncanny resemblance to the late Jean Grey, plus later retcon genetic manipulation by Sinister to want to be with her, apparently, made him immediately attracted and a bit obsessed with her, so they start dating almost on the spot. We learn her brief backstory that she was the only survivor in a plane crash that killed 400 civilians and often has troubles due to the PTSD from that event. Scott reveals his mutant abilities to her in her second appearance after their first real date and she accepts him and his complications pretty much instantly. She does not find out about the X-Men part until later. In Uncanny X-Men 171, this is a very key issue for multiple reasons. You have not only Madeline revealing that the day of her insane plane crash was also the same day Jean Grey, quote, died. We also have Carol Danvers, recently becoming binary, saying goodbye to her earthen family, and Ileana Rasputin finally fully remembering the events of the seven years she spent in limbo. Now, granted, her memory at the time was written as spotty in some places and nearly full in others prior to this, so it's a little bit of a situational situation of interpretation in this case. We also have her revealing her soul sword for the first time on Earth in this issue as well. Uncanny X-Men 173 features the would-be wedding of Logan and Mariko Yoshida, of which Madeline is Scott's plus one. It's now that she learns the truth about Scott's friends. They are the impressive, if controversial, X-Men. Also in this issue, as I've noted before, Madeline is given Kitty Pride's purse, containing Lockheed, to hold at the wedding while Kitty does stuff for the ceremony. Notably, later on in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 9, Madeline takes care of Lockheed for Kitty again, subtly marking when the simplicity of her role with the team comes to an end. In Uncanny X-Men 164 and 165, it goes over Scott's inability to still accept Madeline as her own person, including a proposal to her and ending with their wedding. Yes, it does all feel a bit rushed, lending to the shakiness of their union, no doubt. The couple is sent off on their honeymoon in Uncanny X-Men 176, giving the readers the picture of a perfect couple, desperately in love, superbly skilled, and a great team working together. If only that could have lasted. Things start going bad for Madeline and Scott's relationship in Uncanny X-Men 181, when they are still on their honeymoon and Scott is already spending most of his time out with the X-Men, or otherwise focused on mutant news. Maddie gets pregnant long, not long after, announced in X-Men Alpha Flight number one, a somewhat convoluted storyline that temporarily gives Madeline healing powers and the hero name Anodyne. The two-issue arc ends with ultimately the same status quo as it began, just with baby Nathan officially on his way. For a time, she believes this will save their marriage. However, in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 9, that final issue of the, quote, normal part of Maddie's life reveals her worries have never been, have never been sated. And by now, Maddie fears she'll never be happy again. 
What a quick turn of events. And then by X-Men 200, Scott remains away from her for over a week after returning from an X-Men mission on Asgard, even while she's living in the X-Mansion. My question obviously is, where was he? What was he doing? Very questionable. Um, in X-Men 201, Uncanny X-Men 201, the X-Men and Scott finally show up at the mansion again from Paris now to find that Madeline has given birth on the floor of their kitchen alone. She already drove herself and the baby to the hospital to get checked up and has already returned and cleaned up by the time they all revive. Uh, arrive. She expresses to Storm her disappointment with Scott as both husband and father, which is why when Scott tries to, to stay while Maddie takes the baby to Alaska, using excuses about the X-Men needing him as their leader, Aurora marches up and challenges him to a fight. Winner leads the X-Men, and goddammit if she didn't beat his ass too. She was so mad she beat him without her mutant powers, which at the time had been taken by Rogue. Way to go, Aurora, bless the matriarchy. And so, shamed out of team leadership, Scott goes to Alaska with Maddie and his son, as he should. But the trip doesn't help a damn thing with his role as husband or father. Scott appears in one issue of Secret Wars just after, and his and Madeline's next appearance is X-Factor number one. What should be bliss with their new child is a constant struggle for Madeline, left to do it alone while Scott is glued to the TV watching news about his teammates. Then he gets a call from Beast and Scott leaves without a second thought or explanation to his wife. Maddie even tells him, if you walk out that door, don't come back. And he goes anyway, leaving her and his newborn son behind. The reader learns that the call was regarding Jean, who has returned and is now alive. That is who Scott left for without hesitation. In X An Uncanny X-Men 201, where Scott and Maddie go to Alaska together, this was published in... I was asked with the issue that... Um, Nate was born, was published October 8th, 1985. X-Factor number one, when he leaves her and their baby to go to Jean, that comes out a month later. His baby wasn't even two months old when Scott Summers abandons him and his wife for another woman. When Madeline next appears in Uncanny X-Men 206, it is as an unidentified Jane Doe, arriving at a San Francisco hospital in critical condition. We learn that the supervillain mutant team, the Marauders, tried to hunt Madeline and her newborn baby down. They stole away Nathan, her baby, and left Madeline for dead, but bungled the job of killing her and she ended up surviving. When the Marauders return to the hospital to finish the job, Madeline herself is a main player in her rescue, merely assisted by the X-Men when it comes down to it. They all get away, learning only that the Marauders were sent by Mr. Sinister. Without Scott, who is on the X-Factor team and no other X-Men are in on that knowledge, Madeline ends up staying with the X-Men. As of X-Men 224, she doesn't just live with the team, she helps them on missions, becoming a consistent human voice of empathy and for the otherwise mutant team. She's even included in Forge's spell in Uncanny X-Men 227, which ends with America thinking the X-Men are dead. But they're not. They're all resusc resuscitated by a goddess for their great deed of saving the earth and by uncanny x-men 230 they are established as the x-men team of australia known as the team's outback period 
By Uncanny X-Men 232, Madeline had settled into the Outback team in a big way, being their human voice of reason on many different occasions. Unfortunately, this was not to last, and by the end of that issue, Madeline flips on the TV, only to witness her estranged husband, Scott, out-heroing as Cyclops alongside the original Marvel Girl, the apparently resurrected Jean Grey. The, re the realization of why Scott left her all that time ago, alone and confused with their newborn, strikes Madeline with such shock that she lashes out, punching the TV in front of her. A massive electrical shock blasts from blast from the hit knocks her out. This is just one moment where we see evidence of Madeline's latent mutant abilities before Sim changes her into the Goblin Queen. Arguably, another would be how she survives the Marauder's attack. Uncanny X-Men 233 contains a notoriously disturbing dream sequence where Madeline faces her worst fears about Jean and her own identity, and what they might mean for one another. Very loosely, the dream involves her walking naked through a dream plane, coming across Scott and Jean. Dream Jean takes Madeline's features, her hair, her face, all her femininity, until all that remains is a shell. It says, She would scream, but she has no mouth, a nothing being in a nowhere place, abandoned and alone. The dream leaves her feeling exposed and vulnerable, so it makes sense why she does what she does in the following issue, setting in her doom. Uncanny X-Men 234 starts by summing up where Maddie is physically and mentally. The dream is, this dream is summarized in issue 234 as, quote, a horror show nightmare wherein her husband, Scott Summers, drips her of everything of, strips her of everything of value then her very identity, giving them to his first love, his true love, Jean Grey. He said he was sorry, as though that would make everything all right, as he left her, a nothing being in a nowhere place, abandoned and alone. The next, quote, dream shows the demon lord Sim coming to Madeline and making her an offer. You'll remember Sim from Ileana Rasputin's various adventures in Limbo. He says, wouldn't you rather shape your own destiny than play the perpetual victim? He holds up a handful of nails, literally the nails of the fingers on his hands, each of which showing a different take on Madeline's personality, but put to the extreme. Reminding her that this is just a dream, Sim tells her that he can help her try out one of the personas, just for a little while. Justifying this as only being a dream and thinking of her betrayal from Scott, Madeline picks out the most vengeful personality of the bunch. Sim smirks before literally stabbing the fingernail into her body, imbuing her with that vile persona and binding her to him. He laughs and tells her this actually isn't a dream, which is where Madeline first becomes dressed in her sultry black Goblin Queen outfit. And, of course, this is where I get my idea that Maddie's villainhood can be completely reversed if someone removes that vengeful aspect of her and returns her to normal. This next arc is pretty dull, but it does set up Inferno and learning about who Madeline is, basically. 
Moving beyond the events of the dream and becoming the Goblin Queen, Uncanny X-Men 235 sees Madeline filling in for other pilots again and helping fly some medical rescue planes. When her co-pilot is attacked on arrival to be taken to Genosha, by the way, first mention of Genosha in this issue, by the press gang, Madeline helps her fight them and almost gets a mayday call out before her plane is destroyed. Jenny, the co-pilot, turns out to be a mutant and is sent through the phone line back to Genosha. The same is done with Maddie, ultimately kidnapping both women. Later, Alex Summers makes note that the computers work better for Madeline than for him, so the search for her while she's missing is going to take some work. He tells Dazzler that the computers were Madeline's way of pulling her weight with the team. The Outback team continues to search for her, finding the plane she was kidnapped on. In Uncanny X-Men 236, they find Madeline and Jenny, but are unescued unable to rescue them. Meanwhile, the demon Nastier also looks for Madeline. Later on Genosha, the engineers have trouble even getting Maddie to show up on scanners, which are registering her as not existing. The engineers attempt to start their experiments on Madeline, who warns them not to try to get into her head, but they don't listen, and by the time security finally makes it into the room, Madeline is floating midair and everyone else is dead. In Uncanny X-Men 238, the engineers scan the dead telepath's mind, the one who was trying to get into her head, and sees that she sees herself as a child. The gene engineer in charge tries to make sense of it, and the telepath's memories of this occurrence start to panic themselves, attacking Madeline's inner self violently. She turns to a flaming bird, destroying them all. The gene engineer sees that Madeline is the Goblin Queen and asks who she is and why she's doing this. She responds, the one because it pleases me, the other as a warning to your masters, because when you strike a match, even to light your way in the darkness, because you never know, oh be careful to strike a match, even to light your way in the darkness, because you never know when you'll ignite an inferno. They try to talk to her and get for answers, but she says all she can remember was being strapped to a table with people torturing her mind. She expresses distaste for how they treat their mutants um, and basically ends up getting rescued and uh, Alex destroys the complex when it's all over, panics when a second when he thinks Maddie doesn't make it out, and uh, she, she says that she's, he's not getting rid of her that easy. Now, how Madeline actually came to be is told through Uncanny X-Men 240 and 241, which are the issues when she finally gets to meet Mr. Sinister in person. Basically, how it all went down was when Jean sacrificed herself, her body was put wherever, whatever, and a part of her spirit via the Phoenix went to Earth looking for her and found the clone that Sinister had made of her, Madeline. While Sinister was unable to solve that last step of turning the clone of the shell into Jean, the Phoenix Force pretty much finished it all off for him. Now, Sinister gave Madeline memories of her own, including a family and a personal history. He made her an airline pilot, put her in a job working under Scott's grandfather, and when Scott Summers goes to Alaska to meet with family, that's when he meets Madeline as well. You gotta remember, Sinister has been pretty enamored with the genes of Jean Grey and Scott Summers for a long time, so when he gets the opportunity to somewhat replace Jean and warp the relationship into creating an offspring of those genes anyway, it's like Sinister's wet dream. He is all about that kind of experimentation. 
But let's get back to where Madeline is now in the comics. Now she is an unforgiving goddess. Uh, Madeline uses her powers to warp the X-Men team in Uncanny X-Men 242, causing them to fight against the X-Factor members who you remember are the original X-Men team members. We get some really cool costumes from this period where the Outback outfits are a little bit roughed up to match the Goblin Queen just a bit. When Inferno starts to kick off, Madeline takes her chance with Alex Summers, who she has been growing ever closer to since joining the X-Men. They de they've developed close feelings for one another, but she waits to make her move until now as the more confident Goblin Queen. This makes it so that when she comes out as evil, he cannot betray her, regardless of her plans to kill even him in the end as well. Just another way to hurt Scott. And let's be real, Scott does deserve it. He married a woman for the resemblance of her to his forgotten lost love, impregnated her and abandoned her, and then left her on her own to deliver the baby by herself. Even after meeting his son, he has zero desire to be around him, and full-on immediately abandons his wife and newborn child to rejoin his lost love when she makes a reappearance. So he's not exactly a hero in this story. Alex, of course, does not deserve this either, but that's where we get the on-purpose character assassination, to use a term that I hate, that Louise Simonson and Chris Claremont were forced to write for Maddie to convince audiences that she was now a baddie, basically. Maddie ends up finding the X-Men and X-Factor teams on the Empire State Building. She wishes to sacrifice baby Nathan to hurt Scott and is being used by Nastier to open a portal to Limbo when she kills him and releases all that power. Well, when she will kill him to release all that power. When all the plans start to fall apart in X-Factor number 38, Maddie ends up dramatically killing herself in an attempt to take Jean out with her. Her memories are subsequently absorbed by Jean, and she takes back the final part of the Phoenix Force from Madeline, and after that they take out Sinister. She is considered Nathan's mother, and that is the end-ish. I have some readers' thoughts on the twisting of Madeline's characters towards the ways of evil to make room for the return of Jean. Quote, I think the, the intention here was to have Jean atone for what she did as Dark Phoenix by defeating Madeline. She's one for all showing that she has control over the dark side of herself. However, the bizarre thing here is that Marvel would want their heroes to be free of guilt. As Morrison shows in his run, Scott is a much more interesting character when he's treading on the dark side, and having Jean completely absolved of everything is just a bizarre choice, unquote. Another quote on the aftermath of Uncanny X-Men 243. Past events are reconfigured to excuse Scott for walking out on her. The most ridiculous is the idea that Maddie was influencing the fight between Scott and Storm in Uncanny X-Men 201 to ensure that Scott would be with her. For one, during that issue, she had just had a baby who Scott was showing no interest in. At that point, Claremont's agenda seemed to be sh to show Scott as flawed in his belief that he needed to be a leader, and the point of the story was to puncture his belief that the X-Men needed him so he could go off and be with his family. Now it's reconfigured as Maddie selfishly wanting him only for herself, which isn't even that ridiculous considering she just had a baby. Considering, sorry, shouldn't she want Scott to be with her? And yet at and yet, at the same, Scott is now seen as one so committed to his child while Maddie is the reckless one. 
the issue does seem to indulge in a lot of retconning to excuse Scott's actions. So, not only was he abused as a child, but Maddie was sent in to harvest his DNA, he was programmed to be attracted to her, and what he did is even more excusable. Unquote. For Maddie's modern returns, her modern history, there have been three times where she has returned, the final one being uh, when she is now here for the New Mutants arc. The first time was uh, where an alternate reality, Nathan Gray, basically accidentally resurrects her or a version of her. It's not very clear, and she is used as a weird story prop for a while in his story before eventually being killed again. The only relevant stuff that happens here is she briefly joins the Hellfire Club alongside Shaw and Celine and some others. In my opinion, this is not truly Madeline because there's a lot of weird discrepancies that ultimately make me think this was just some version of her that X-Men accidentally created from stories that he knew of other versions. Um, I don't really consider it to be canon, to be honest, because um, honestly, I mean, it's, it's, it's Nathan Gray from another reality comes here and apparently creates her from his mind. I don't really consider that to be her, but that's, it's still there, so there it is. Maddie's later brought back through further convoluted means by Amora in Uncanny X-Men 499, getting the sisterhood together. Her outfit is mainly this kind of boring pants and corset look, somewhat lazily copying some Emma Frost designs just in black and red. Later in this tragic arc, she dons a truly nightmarish S&M look, seducing and sexing Scott Summers while in disguise as his then-lover Emma Frost was, yes, it is super rapey. Um, and that's why everyone pretty much unanimous, unanimously hates that arc. It ends, surprisingly enough, with her status being alive, as long as she leaves them alone, so that is how it's been for quite some time. Finally, her return in Dawn of X came through Hellions, where her rage at being brought back but literally forgotten finally boils over. The Hellions team gets caught up in her mess, and thanks to ever-scheming Sinister and Quanin, ends up uh, ending the situation by killing the Goblin Queen, breaking teammate Alex's heart even further. She has now been brought back, of course, again uh, by the five who have put their foot down and demanded that mutants, mutant clones are people too. Um, that portrayal of Madeline that we saw initially at Dawn of X was spawned, I believe, through her rage, regret, jealousy, and hatred, pretty much all the worst parts of her. Now, I've mentioned Madeline was created with a different intention than with how it's kind of turned out to be, so let's talk about what her true origin is. Um, I have some links below talking about um, how she became a clone when she wasn't originally supposed to be a clone, uh, and some other things that you can find where I'm getting these lines from. So this is from uh, actually that one talking about, uh, you can see it's a Screen Rant article, links at the bottom of the description, uh, that is where I'm getting this quote from. Madeline Pryor is the perfect illustration of just how soap opera the X-Men comics can get. She's technically the wife of Cyclops, who discovered she was a clone and felt abandoned when he returned to work with the resurrected Jean Grey. She turned bad, slept with Cyclops' brother, attempted to sacrifice her son in order to see the entire world with Hellfire. It's kind of a crazy story that could only happen in comics, but just how did it come about? In the 1970s, legendary X-Men scribe Chris Claremont wanted to have Scott Summers and Jean Grey graduate from Xavier's school and head off into the sunset to live their much-deserved happily ever after. Then, editorial f flat 
flat for editorial flat force a different conclusion to the dark phoenix saga and claremont's plans were ruined jean gray was dead and editor-in-chief jim shooter insisted she could not be brought back unless writers found a way to absolve her of the crime she had committed as dark phoenix which included the act of genocide in truth, Shooter never expected anyone to come up with an idea that would pull that off. As far as he was concerned, Jean Grey was dead, and that was never going to change. Claremont intended Madeline's similarity to Jean to be nothing more than a coincidence, and Scott and Madeline got married, with Cyclops retiring from the X-Men. It was a pretty weird plot. They even had sent a postcoil postcard to Charles Xavier, compounding the strangeness of it all and leaving many readers curious about who took the photo on the front of the postcard. Kurt Busick came up with the idea of retconning Jean Grey and the Phoenix as separate entities, revealing Phoenix was a cosmic force who had taken the place of Jean while her body lay in a healing cocoon. She was discovered by the Fantastic Four and resuscitated. Marvel had written themselves into a corner, because the dynamic between Cyclops and Jean Grey was as strong as ever, and yet Cyclops was married to another woman. So Claremont began a major retcron, gradually revealing Madeline Pryor had actually been a clone of Jean Grey, created by the ruthless and manipulative Mr. Sinister. She had been granted life by a fragment of the Phoenix Force, no less, and she gradually discovered her powers. Co-scriptor Louise Simonson later boasted of deliberately working to destroy the character to make killing her off as easy and justifiable. Main scripter Chris Claremont seemed slightly regretful of what was done, and years later snuck prior into a few X-Men flashback stories with her original, likable characterization, and also into an alternate future story which gave her redemption. Claremont wrote her into an amazing character on her own terms, one who I could argue is much more interesting than Jean. Maddie is someone who's been through a lot of awful experiences, what with her husband leaving her, her son being kidnapped, her identity erased, and, and the attempt at her own life. It was a rough couple of years, but rather than retreat into a normal life or total depression, she decided to jump up with the X-Men and become a team member of become a member of the team, despite the doubts of whether she or not she belongs. Claremont was not fully behind what happened with Maddie, yet at the same time, he did write the book, so in evaluating it, some of the blame for what goes wrong certainly falls to him. The fact that someone who abandoned his wife is canonized, while Maddie is vilified, is very poor storytelling. And from the end of Inferno, it is a mere 35 issues until Claremont's run is over. Food for thought. Now, let's talk a little bit about my personal headcanon of who Madeline Pryor is and my personal ideas of how they could handle her better. So I've already talked a bit about how Madeline was created with different intention than what um, kind of ended up being. Uh, so we won't rehash that again. But with all of that in mind, it is certainly not any kind of personal preference when I look at her entire character history and say that she is a fascinating creation who deserved and deserves better and that that is still a debt that can be paid. All of that being said, Madeline Pryor is indeed her own person. She is driven by a separate past even with her fake history. Now as for my ideas on how they could handle her, the most obvious one which I've already mentioned being remove the nail of evil that they put inside her. 
it was literally put in her. It can be taken out. With the amount of magical mutants that there are, I cannot believe that nobody has thought of this yet. But I guess nobody was there besides Madeline and Sim when that all went down, so nobody really is aware of how she became the Goblin Queen. But all we need to do is communicate that, have her and Jean do their little chatty chat. And then Jean sees what happened and is like, you know what, I know somebody who can get that rid of that for you and you can go back to being yourself. Because this is not Maddie when she is the Goblin Queen. It is Maddie taken to an extreme in a certain direction, which is still her, but it's her to an extreme in a certain direction. It's not, it's her being tortured by her own anger and guilt and rage. She doesn't have to be like that. Um, other ways that they could have gone, now this one's off the table, now that young Nathan is gone, uh, she could have sacrificed herself for her son. Um, I, again, I don't get why they just ignore the fact that Jean is not Nathan's mother. Maddie is. Um, even, even with the series for a while, uh, with Nathan as Cable, I, I don't recall them mentioning her at all, and he just calls Jean mom. So, it feels like such injustice, and I, I wish that was something that they had done while he was still around. Finally, um, if they don't want to do the remove the evil part of her, just give her a place to exist of her own. Um with somebody to worship and for her to worship in return unwaveringly with or without the evil side and that seems to be possibly what they're trying to do with this new mutants arc in limbo but we're just gonna have to wait and see Finally, let's talk about where we're going to be seeing Maddie coming up, specifically that New Mutants arc. We already have issue 25 having kicked it off, which ended with Madeline and Magic trying to leave Limbo to Krakoa and seemingly failing. They are actively being hunted by the creatures of Limbo, um, but it does seem that I was kind of correct or completely correct in my assumption that Madeline is trying to get less responsibilities on her, her plate by handing off the control of Limbo to Madeline. Did I say that right? Magic is giving it to Madeline. Okay. Issue number 26 is coming out June 22nd with variants covers by Maria Wolf and Carmen Carnero. What it says about this issue is, while the queen is away, demons will play. A new queen has taken the throne of Limbo, Madeline Pryor, aka the Goblin Queen. Meanwhile, separated from Limbo, Magic faces an enemy she thought she had banished long ago. That does confuse me because, as I said, the issue 25 ended with Magic and Madeline in the same place, so who knows how that's going to happen. Issue number 27 comes out July 13th. It says, Falling into the looking glass. With her soul sword shattered, Magic spirals into unfamiliar territory as she confronts her legacy in, in limbo, dragging Mirage and Wolfsbane down with her. And while Magic faces demons of her past, present, and future, Madeline Pryor inches closer to the throne. I feel like those solicitations are flipped, don't you? <laughs> We have on this one a Pride variant by Betsy Cola, which will feature Karma. A, a Hellfire Gala variant by Russell Dodderman, featuring Magic. And a Marcus Toe variant, which has yet to be announced. Finally, uh, which I believe will be the last issue of this arc, uh, August 10th comes issue 28th. It's 
8. <laughs> it says, an end of an era in more ways than one. The time has come for magic to conquer her demons. Will Ileana be able to contend with manifestations of her trauma and save her friends in the process? And if Madeline does gain the throne, can the Goblin Queen contain the fiery madness of Limbo? Or will her, her old inclinations towards chaos resurface, bringing Kokroa and the rest of the world to their knees. We have uh, artists both Rod Reese and Jan Dersima on this one, apparently, and no variant covers announced yet, just a main cover by Lionel Francis Yu. Um, I will also note that it does seem that they're trying to make us seem like Madeline is going to be the villain of this arc, when in reality it is going to be pretty much... Um, Madeline trying to prove herself in one area while magic is trying to prove herself in another. Um, how it will end, I don't feel honestly super confident about because we already know that coming in, I believe, August, uh, she will be appearing in this Spider-Man series as a villain alongside Spider-Man clone villain. What's he going as now? Chasm. <laughs> ben Riley is now, and he's now lost his memories again, and he's a villain again, and he's Chasm now. So, uh, and she's going to be teaming up with him because, quote, we have a lot in common. Literally, one thing, you have one thing in common, and then it's that you're both clones. That is the only thing you guys have in common. I, 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 I don't like that. Ha it doesn't look too great. Well, actually, you know, if you read the free comic book day preview to what that's going to have, it does look like she rules Limbo now. So there's that. Um, who knows what's going to happen with magic, but it does look like Madeline Pryor will, will end up ruling Limbo. So good for her. I don't know why she has to be a villain after that. I just, it's in Spider-Man too. Come on. Come on, guys. <laughs> but that's it. That's what I got today for the uh, uh, podcast for the for the for the Yancey Street special. What what month is it for? May. God, I can't keep track of what day it is at like any point in time. Um, I did mention I would go over my social media stuff at the end. So here is that. If you would like to hit up the Yancey Street Discord, um, there's only a few of us in here now, but we're trying to grow the community. There's a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode, obviously themed for people of like minds and interests, but you can talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We have all the categories. Uh, you can find me most easily on social media on Instagram. Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics. You can find my podcast updates most easily on Twitter under Savage She Geek. And my website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. You'll find a number of links to it in the description. Um, I have been working on fixing up the site a lot so that it is more relevant in addition to the podcast, which includes beginner's guides to both comics and manga, covering any information that you might need to take your first steps into the world of reading comics, including recommendations of uh, various genres, uh, graphic novels, and manga. I also have reading orders of various reading ladies. That does obviously include Madeline Pryor. I've gone over that quite a bit. You can read it in a short amount of time. 
as well as Clea, who is, is not too complicated to read either, and Magic. Um, there's a number of others, but those are the three most relevant at the moment. Anything that you would like to see pre-2021, pre-February 2021, it would be found written on the blog, which is uh, before I started the podcast. Uh, now I cover pretty much anything that I might have covered on the blog on the podcast. But you can still find on the blog my pod notes, which are the podcast notes I take throughout the week to go over uh, to, to basically go over for the podcast. Uh, it's there for reading the podcast instead of listening as well as for anyone who is hearing impaired who can, would still like to keep up with what's going on. Uh, you can also find links to anywhere that you can listen to this podcast, which does include most, if not all, hosting apps, and YouTube, where I post the videos in a single playlist in order, if that is easier for you to listen from. Uh, I also post action figure review videos. It has been a lot more imports recently, as I've been pretty much given up on Hasbro Marvel Legends, but I have a big backlog of Legends videos, including the HasLab Sentinel. Uh, two new uploads uh, one new upload you can, that's up there now, and the second one I have yet to finish posting. Uh, you have the SH Figure Arts Kefla from, uh, she's a legendary Super Saiyan fused, Khalifa and Kale from the final arcs of Dragon Ball Super, and then the Chibi Sailor Moon I will hopefully be getting up uh, by this weekend. I do have a podcast Patreon, you can find it under Sensational She Geek, it's set up for donations to support the podcast. Um, and I do have some after shows that I've been putting up as more rewards kind of things that are exclusive to just the Patreon. Um, I also have links for Ko-fi, which is like a buy your creator a coffee. Um, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, all of that stuff is linked on my link tree for donations towards the podcast because I still do work a day job. Um, and I do all of this for fun. If you would like to support the podcast, that would be the best way to do that. And that all appears linked uh, with other fun things at the bottom of each episode's description. And that wraps up this May special. Again, the June special is going to be on Patsy Walker. I'm super excited for it. It's going to be out in the next week or two. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, have an excellent end of spring and... Justice for Madeline Pryor. That's it. Hashtag justice for Madeline Pryor. I'd like to see that happen in the comics. Thank you very much. Goodbye.